We come this morning to our sermon passage, and we are continuing on in our um, sermon series in the Ten Commandments, Living Free. And this morning we're in the Second Commandment. So we we did a a sermon a couple of weeks ago that kind of introduced the sermon series. Last week was the First Commandment. This week we're in the Second one. And I have uh, the passage printed for you in your bulletin. Uh, We'll be in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, and then 4 through 6. It's printed for you in your bulletin, or you can pull it up in your Bible, um, either physical Bible or on your phone, um, and read along. This is God's Word. Good, beautiful, and true. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that it shows us who you are and who we are in you. It shows us what you're about and what that means for us. So I pray as we attend to the riches and the treasures of your word this morning, that you would move by your spirit to illumine our hearts, that we would see all that is ours in Christ. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you guys ever been starstruck? You know what that is? Like you meet a celebrity or somebody you admire, somebody who means a lot to you, maybe a sports star or an author or a movie star, and you are so just overcome in the moment of meeting this person that you're tongue-tied, you're, you can't think straight, and you're starstruck. What's happened to me a couple of times in my life, and probably the most notable, at least the one that sticks out in my imagination the most, was the time that I met, the first time I met the lead singer of the band Switchfoot. Now, you don't need to know who that is. You don't need to like that band. It's fine. But they're a band that's meant a lot to me for a long time. Like They started in 1997. I've been a fan since day one. And these songs have meant so, so much to me. So this was years ago, probably 2005. And... Um, I was going to see them in concert for maybe the second time, but this time I was going to get to meet the lead singer. We knew he was doing an after-the-show, like, meet-and-greet type thing, and I was so excited. In fact, I was in a band at the time, and we had recorded a few songs on a demo, and I had printed off, or burnt, kids, you don't know what that is, Um, I had burnt CDs of the songs, one each for each member of the band. So I had a stack of CDs in my hand, and I was like, in my mind, I was going to give it to them, and they would listen to it in the bus, and we'd go on tour with them and be best friends. Um, anyway, so I'm waiting in line to meet this guy. His name's John Foreman, and it's finally my turn, and I go to open my mouth, and I just cannot complete a sentence. I am just flabbergasted. I, I, your songs, and it was so bad that John Foreman pulled me in for a hug, like a little pity hug, because I could not get a full sentence out. <sighs> it, yeah, I was, I was profoundly starstruck by this person who just had impressed me um, so much. So I want you to imagine my wildest dreams came true that night. I want you to imagine that I'm standing there in front of John Foreman and he says, you know what, you seem like a pretty cool guy. Why don't we be friends? In fact, here's my phone number. My private number, where you know you can reach me. Here, you can call me. We didn't text at the time. This is how long ago it was. But you can call me here, 
and you're going to get in touch with me. Let's hang out. Let's be friends. Now, I want you to imagine I got that phone number. It's, it, it's like my wildest dream come true, right? And I go home, and I pick up my phone, and instead of looking down at the number that he's given to me to call him, I start punching random numbers in. Or I start punching in numbers that I think should be his number, like 1-800-SWITCHFOOT or something that doesn't connect with him. And instead of pursuing this friendship that he said he wants with me, if, instead I, get, uh, I, I create a cardboard cutout and I try to draw him from memory and I set it up in my living room to admire it or have a poster on the wall. That wouldn't be a real relationship. That, in fact, would be me turning my back on the avenue that he's told me to contact him by. He's told me to call him here. I can get in touch with him. But instead, I'd rather kind of keep my own imagination of who he is or try to reach him in my own way. I know that sounds silly, but I mention all of that because it's a good picture of what's going on in the second commandment. And I'll unpack that more as we go. But God had told the Israelites here, and He's telling us now, that what He wants with us is not a poster-on-the-wall relationship. He doesn't want us to put Him on a pedestal and keep Him at a distance. God has bought us and freed us to live in vital, life-giving relationship with Him. In the terms of my illustration, He has given us His phone number and told us, you can reach me always here. And so we don't need to kind of create pathways to try to get to God. We don't need to, to try to work our way to Him or craft anything to get to Him. He has come to us to make Himself our source of life and grace. And He doesn't leave us guessing on how to live in this relationship with Him. Now I'll unpack that more. We might be a little confused at the moment because we're talking about images, but I'll get there. Um, we're going to break this uh, sermon up into three sections. And I'm using the same three sections for all of these um, Ten Commandments um, sermons because I think they help give us a good lens and outlook to see the whole thing. And the first one's this, who are we in the gospel? Who are we in the gospel? We've talked about this in the last few weeks. Two weeks ago we talked about how the Ten Commandments does not even begin with God giving a list of things to do. It begins with God telling who He is. We read it right here in verses 1 and 2. The Ten Commandments do not begin by God starting the list of things to do. He says what? God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What we are to do, and before God tells us to do anything, begins with who He is and what He's done. He turns the camera lens on Himself because grace goes first always. Grace goes first always. When Moses showed up in Egypt and the Israelites are bound in slavery, Moses did not show up with the Ten Commandments. What happened is God freed His people in this profound demonstration of power without any help from them whatsoever. And only after He had freed them did He tell them how to live as freed people. It was not, here's a list of things to do to earn your freedom. No, God bought their freedom. And then told them how to live as His freed people. Grace goes first. Always, always, always. Now last week we looked at the first commandment. God tells His people to have no other gods before Him. What's going on there? Well, we talked about how anything that we look to for ultimate value or ultimate love is a God. And what God does in Christ is He gives us a value beyond counting. Remember I talked about how... Um, Something is worth what somebody's willing to pay for. 
And if that's true, then the infinite value of the eternal Son of God who took on flesh to die for us bestows on us a value beyond counting. And that's why we're to have no other gods, because no other place we can look can give us that value. We have been given value beyond counting in the gospel. And it is God who justifies us. We are who he says we are as we sing. Well, that brings us to the, the, the second commandment here, because God not only gives us value and then sends us off. God's not just like uh, one of the people that works on Antique Roadshow. Have you ever watched Antique Roadshow? I'm probably dating myself because um, that show's been on like 40 years. But, uh, you know, they, they bring, people bring in treasures and the, the experts look at it and they say, well, this is worth, you know, a billion dollars. Nothing's ever a billion dollars, but this is worth a million dollars. But then that expert never sees that thing again. That is not what God is doing when he bestows value on us. He's not a collector that purchases things and then puts them on the wall. No, what's happened is God has freed us to live in this life-giving, vital relationship with him. And he reveals himself to us truly that we will relate to him truly. And that we will find him as our source of life and our source of confidence. That he will be our strength. That he will be the gas in our gas tank. That He is our God, and He is God with us, and God for us, and not God without us. God has no desire to be God apart from us. That's why He worked in Christ, to be God with us and God for us, and not God apart from us. So He's redeemed us in Christ for this vital life-giving relationship, and that is the essence of the second commandment. God is telling His people, do not start creating images to worship. Because that will not better your worship. You don't need to make this beautiful statue to represent me. You don't need to make anything to get to me. You don't have to create something to have this relationship or maintain it. You don't need a poster on the wall kind of relationship with God. Or the kind of relationship we have with a celebrity where we admire that person, but it's not an actual relationship. No, what God has done is worked in human history to make himself known to us so that we would truly know him and be known and loved. Who are we in the gospel? We are those that God has shown himself to. But not only that, not only that, I've said there's no images of God. That, that's what God's saying in the second commandment. Don't make images of me. Don't make images of me. But that's only partially true. Because the reality is that God forbids making, us making images of Him because He has made images of Himself. God has created human beings, in the words of Genesis 1 and elsewhere in Scripture, in His image and likeness. God tells us to not make images of who He is because He has made images of Himself. Human beings made in His image and likeness made to uniquely reflect Him and copy Him, made to represent Him and, in a sense, bring God to each other. That's what human beings were created to do, to be reflections and images of Him. So we don't make images of God because we are images of God. Now, the reality of sin and violence in our world means that this image is, is like a shattered mirror. It only reflects who God is in broken ways and partial ways. 
But the good news of the gospel is that part of what Jesus is doing by grace is restoring to us the fullness of the image of God so that we are being healed and transformed to truly reflect God the way we were created to. And so he's renewing our intellects. He's renewing our affections and our desires. He's renewing our actions and our wills that we would love true knowledge, that we would love goodness, that we would love righteousness. So who are we in the gospel? We are God's treasure, brought into relationship with Him and redeemed to be what we were always created to be, His reflection, His image. That is who we are, before I move to my next section, that is who we are before God gives us the second commandment. As always, God first redeems and frees us, and then He teaches us how to live free. And that brings me to the second section. How we are to live as God's freed people. How we are to live as God's freed people. God is free. God cannot be contained. God cannot be put in a box. We do not control Him. But God has told us that He loves us, right? God has told us that He loves us, that He's the free God that can't be controlled. And what He does with that freedom is choose to love us. And He has told us where we can find Him and that we don't need to come up with ways to get to Him. That living in this life-giving relationship with God means taking seriously what He has revealed Himself to be and how he has revealed himself to us. Later on in Scripture, if you keep reading, um, Moses, before he dies, he gives this kind of like final speech to the people of Israel. And that's actually what the book of Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy is Moses is about to die, and he is leaving his final kind of words. And what he does is he kind of walks through their entire history of being freed from Egypt, and he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that when uh, and God is speaking through Moses here. God says, When I appeared to you at Mount Sinai, you didn't see a form. I didn't show you a form. I didn't show you an image. But I spoke to you. What he's telling the people is a push to emphasize um, and to focus on what he has said. He says, When I spoke to you at Mount Sinai, you didn't see a form. But you heard my voice. You heard my word. They are to treasure and take seriously what he has said. God has communicated to his people. And it is crucial in this life-giving relationship that he has brought us into with him to focus on what he has said. To focus on what he has said. And for the Israelites to make an image of God thinking that it would help them to worship better. Because maybe they thought, you know, we're visual people. Let's make an image. It will help us focus our attention. We'll have this image, this physical thing we can look at. And that will help our worship be even better and more powerful. But God is saying for the Israelites to try and make an image of God, thinking it would help them to worship better, would be like us dialing, or me dialing random numbers, trying to get John Foreman when he's already giving me his phone number. He's already told me how I can connect with and that's what the Israelites actually do later on in Exodus. After God gives them the second commandment, you keep reading. One of the most famous instances in the life of Moses is when the Israelites make the golden calf. Or this picture of a golden bull. They give of their wealth to melt down this gold and they build a statue. 
But I don't know if you've ever realized that, that when they build that idol, when they build that statue, they are not turning, at least in their perspective, to another god. They were building an image of the true God. They were trying to make an image of God. Thinking, well, what it was, is they were worried because God had appeared in this big booming way, like lightning and earthquakes as He's giving the Ten Commandments, but then God didn't speak that way anymore. And they were like, is he, is he gone? Has he left us? And so almost to maybe focus their worship and almost to get God's attention, they think, well, we'll make an image. We'll burn down our wealth and we'll build something very uh, impressive. They'd grown nervous that God had forgotten about them and they thought that creating this golden calf would be how they could worship him and get his attention. That if they had this image, they could really worship. But in reality, it was them rejecting what God had said. They made an idol of their own imagination, and in doing so, they had neglected what God had actually said to them. They were going off on their own, quote-unquote, good ideas, and taking the good advice of the religions they knew in Egypt. But neglecting and rejecting what God had actually said. And in fact, it was them, in a sense, trying to control God. They were trying to create an image, and they thought if they could make an idol, they could almost box God in. Because they were feeling that He had left them, and they thought if we make an idol and that represents God, He can't leave us again. They didn't trust His Word. They thought they needed to build something to almost control Him, to trap Him. They wanted to put God on a pedestal and they wanted to treat Him like a mascot. And this is not the relationship that God wants with His people. Not at all. God does not want that poster on the wall, that mascot kind of relationship with us. God who cannot and will not be contained and controlled. And the good news for them, the good news for us this morning, is that we do not have to trust in our ability to build anything or to grab a hold of Him. We don't have to trust in our own strength to be able to reach Him. The entire good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ is that God comes to us, that we are distant from Him, that we are like the prodigal son in the far country. We have left everything behind and God chases after us in Jesus to find us. That we don't have to create anything. We don't have to prove ourselves to Him at all. That He justifies us by faith. So we don't have to create an idol. But that's probably not a danger for any of us in here but I'll tell you what is a danger for us, especially as a young church, to think that we're in a, a season now that will eventually lead to us building a beautiful cathedral, a beautiful building, and that one day we're going to do a big a fundraising drive and we're going to raise a whole bunch of money. Fundraising drives aren't bad. Buildings aren't bad, let me say that. But to think that if we build a beautiful cathedral or a beautiful church building that now God is really with us, that now this place we can really worship there? It's a backwards kind of thinking. And in my mind, it's kind of a violation of the second commandment. I'm not saying don't build beautiful church buildings, but I'm saying if in our mind we're thinking, I can worship better there than I can in a rented facility. I can worship better there than I can anywhere else. 
It's a backwards kind of thinking that does not take seriously the reality of the gospel. No, we are called to take seriously what he has said, knowing that he is faithful to his promises, that we don't need to do anything to prove ourselves to him, that we don't have to create a box or a building or anything to trap him in, that he's faithful to his word, and we don't need to impress him. That He has promised, and He is faithful to His promises. He has promised to give us His grace unending, and we don't have to try to hold on to Him to make that happen. And the good news for us, even better good news than what the Israelites had here, is that God's Word, as we read in our call to worship from John chapter 1, in Jesus Christ, God's Word has put on flesh to dwell among us. In all the Old Testament, God spoke words, and they were true words. But when Jesus comes, it is the embodiment of those words. And so when we are tempted to look anywhere else, when we're tempted to make idols in our mind or images of God, when we're tempted to think if we might have a beautiful cathedral, we can worship God better as a church, we look to Jesus as our confidence and nothing else. Jesus and Jesus alone. And the good news, friends, is that Jesus tells us where we can find him. He gives us the phone number where we know we can always reach God. God has told us where to find him. Theologians across history have called these the ordinary means of grace, which is just a fancy way of saying these are the phone numbers where we know we can reach God. God has told us where we can find Him. Things that are not dependent on us to make them happen. And they're not dependent on our feelings either. And what are those ordinary means of grace? Where are those places we can always find God? Well, Scripture. We can always find God in prayer. We can always find God in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Where can we encounter God and find Him always? When we read His Word and hear it preached. He will work through the instrument of His Word to show Himself to us. Or when we pray, we don't perform. We aren't heard because of our many words. This is literally a quote from Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. We are not heard for our many words. We are not called to perform in prayer. God is not more impressed when we use fancy theological terms. We pray knowing our Father delights in us and He always hears us. Or in the sacraments, when we receive the Lord's Supper, which we do every week, it is a reminder that who nourishes us? Jesus. Who died for us? Jesus. Who feeds us and is leading us home and empowering us to lead us home where we will be made new in all of who we are? Jesus. And when we look to baptism, whether we're baptized at, you know, not just the moment that we're baptized, but we lean on the promises that are said there, that it is God who cleanses us. It is God who washes us. It is God who makes promises and seals those promises and is faithful to keep those promises. That's where we can always find Him. In Scripture, in prayer, the Lord's Supper and baptism. The thing I love about all of these things is they are as widely available as possible. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But think about Scripture. God could have the relationship with us where He individually spoke to every individual person. But that would create, I think, in our world, chaos. Because it would become, is there somebody God actually speaks to more? 
And if he speaks to that person more and they turn and they tell me, well, God told me to tell you to do this, all of a sudden that person has become our channel to God. They've become the person who speaks to us and I have to listen to that individual person. But Scripture, God gives Scripture and it is a public book. It belongs to all of us. And that's why the impulse from the earliest writing of Scripture was to make copies. It's why we have so many copies from, from history. We have unbelievable number of copies from early, early on of Scripture. And it's because the impulse was, we've got to make as many copies of this as we possibly can because this doesn't just belong to me. It's not designed to be locked up and pulled out once a week and the, the priest tells us what to do. No, this is made to be public because this is God's Word. It is His public book for us. God uh, inspires Scripture and uses it as the instrument to reveal who He is and what He's about. And we read and interpret it together and He leads us in wisdom by His Holy Spirit. Or think of prayer. Prayer is us coming to God with praise and requests and thankfulness and even complaints. And in prayer we're communicating, we're responding to God who has reached for us. But the truth is the prayer of the newest Christians, the prayer of the baby who can't form words, and the prayer of the person who has followed Jesus for the entirety of their life now, those are equal. Like, there's not prayers that are more heard than other prayers. It's as widely available as possible, and you don't have to go anywhere to pray. You can pray in your bathroom. You can pray in your closet. You can pray in your car. And you are heard. Or think of the sacraments. I say it often. The Lord's Supper is so ordinary. God could have gave us a recipe for an incredible, like, filet mignon, perfectly cooked steak, but it's bread. And wine. These are two of the most widely available things in human culture. You can go to any culture in the world and you're going to find some form of bread and some form of wine. And that is on purpose. He didn't give us a fancy recipe to try to perfect and perform and serve like we're chefs. He uses the most ordinary things to communicate to us His extraordinary grace, and we can find this anywhere. Or think of the Lord, or, or baptism. The importance of baptism is not summed up in the amount of water that's used. So some people are dunked completely underwater when they're baptized. That's how I was baptized. Some people are, are baptized by having water poured on their head. Some people are baptized by having water sprinkled on their head. And compared to a big tub, that's a lot less water. But the point isn't the amount of water that's used. And the point is not where that water's from. Some people are baptized in rivers and lakes. Some people are baptized in churches. That's not the point. But water, friends, is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And that sign is designed to teach us that it is God who washes us. We don't have to go get holy water, some kind of special water to be baptized. All of these means of grace are as widely available as possible to teach us, again, it is not about us performing. It is not about us trying to create something to reach for God. No, He comes to us in our ordinariness to find us and to invite us into this vital, life-giving relationship where He not only gives us value, but He becomes our sustenance, our day-to-day -day way to thrive and flourish. And that leads me to my last section because there's actually one more means of grace that I want to talk about. 
And my last section here is how does this freedom lead us to mention? Mission, not mention. <laughs> how does this freedom lead us to mission? Now, I mentioned earlier that God tells us not to create images of Him because He has already created images of Him. The human beings are created in His image and likeness. And He tells us that we are to copy Him and we're called to receive our worth and value from Him. But it's important to note that not only are you created in the image of God, every human being you know is. Not only are you the image and likeness of God with inherent dignity and worth, but every human being you have ever met is the image of God. And this means that God frees us and He teaches us to live as God's freed people. And that freedom leads us to see others as who they truly are and to tell them who they are. That they are the image of God with worth and dignity. And when we turn to others, no matter how far gone we may think they are in our minds, we can see them as people who can be redeemed, people who can receive grace, people who can receive the transformation that will heal the ways the image of God in them is cracked and broken. This leads us to mission because when we go out in the world, we are not looking at people that we need to think that this is my enemy. This is somebody who I am against. No, we walk out and we see that these are images of God with value and worth and they are broken. But I am called to love them because they are an image of my God. And that's not only true of people out there. It teaches us how to interact with each other in the church. To say that we are the image of God, redeemed to reflect Him to one another, means that in an important way, we are meant to see God in each other. That we are meant to find Him in one another. I said the means of grace are where we can always find God in Scripture, in prayer, in the sacraments. Well, that's designed to be true in the church as well. That we embody God. We're called the body of Christ in the New Testament. We embody God to each other. That as the fruit of the Spirit are born out in our lives, that we represent in an important way God to each other. To say all of that and sum it up in a kind of different way, people are the point. People are the point. When God tells us not to make images, when He tells the Israelites that, because He's already made an image, He's telling us that people are the point. Not some great cathedral, not some building, not some program, not some quote-unquote ministry. People are the point. We don't have to travel to some great cathedral and some beautiful mountaintop to find God. There are not some Christians who have better access to God because they could afford to build a beautiful statue of Him or a better chapel. There are not some people who have better access to God because they are better artists or they have money to pay better artists. In my lifetime, I've been in some gorgeous, gorgeous cathedrals and church buildings. I'm a Carolina fan, but I'm always awed when I go to Duke Chapel. And I always feel like, mm, it's a beautiful building. But God's not more present in Duke Chapel. God's not more present in the Vatican. He's not more present in the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul than He is right here this morning today. And when we look around, we embody that for each other. God is just as present right here when we gather to worship. 
than he was in the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament. So, as we return to each other, we realize that what we have to offer each other is the grace of Jesus Christ. Not Jesus created in our own image, not the box that we try to put God into, but what we have for one another is Jesus, the grace of Jesus and that alone. Now that leads me to my conclusion here because there's one more thing I want to touch on because there is a verse that I just read a few minutes ago that the first time I read it and probably the 50th time I read it terrified me. So when it talks about how God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God who punishes the children from the, for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. That is a bit terrifying. In fact, I have a vivid memory of being in a Sunday school class. I was a preteen. I was probably 11 or 12. The teacher had just read this passage, and one of my buddies was like, I don't get this. He said, why does God get to be jealous? My mom tells me all the time to not be jealous of my sister. Why does God get to be jealous? Why? And in my mind, I agreed with him. But I think it's because I was thinking about it all wrong. Jealous probably is not the best translation for this word. What's going on here is God is not saying, I am a pedantic toddler who's going to have a hissy fit. What God is saying, I am passionate for you. This same word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to talk about how somebody feels about their spouse. This intense love. Not to own or possess that person, but this desire, this zeal, this passion. God's telling us here that He is passionate for us. He is dedicated to us. And when God says He's jealous, He is passionately committed to our good. That He is at work to bring grace, bring grace and life into our world of violence and death. And notice what He's saying here is not, if you mess up one time, I'm going to punish you and your children of the third and fourth generation. No, He's talking about uh, those who hate me. You don't hate on accident. Like, hate is very specific opposition. It's rejection of the actual God for the God of our own expectations, who doesn't exist and has nothing for us. We see this actual thing at work in the life of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus arrives, the eternal Son of God takes on flesh to become a human being. He's the light of God, shining into darkness, and when He arrives, He's eventually rejected because He did not meet the expectations of the most religious people. He did not look like what they thought he should look like. And so they literally killed him. And here God sounds a little bit vindictive, at least at first pass. He says he'll, he'll punish to the third and fourth generation, right? Well, what's actually going on there is God is saying, I will limit the power and effects of sin. He says he'll punish to the third and fourth generation, but at the time, every household was three or four generations. God is saying the fire of sin and the fire of hatred and opposition for me will not burn untended. I will limit it. I will limit it. This is a limitation of the power of sin. But what is unlimited here? When he's speaking, what's unlimited is his love. 
He says to a thousand generations. And when Scripture speaks of a generation, it's usually 40 years. I want you to think about that. A thousand generations. If a generation is 40 years, God is saying, my wrath against those who hate me will be limited to this household. And if anybody in that household turns to God, that hatred's over. He's, you know, that, that he's, he's calling people to himself. But my love... My love stretches beyond your understanding. The true vital relationship with God will will reverberate out beyond our ability to comprehend. God spoke these words 3,500 years ago and it feels like ancient, ancient times, right? It's because it is in our history. But if we were taking it literally, God is saying, my love that I'm declaring today stretches 40,000 years. 40,000 years. What he's saying is his just wrath against sin is a small thing in comparison with his profound love for his people. God is a jealous God, meaning he is passionate for us. And he calls us into this life-giving relationship with him to find him as our source of nourishment and strength every day and in all things. Now, I don't want you to go home and like start calculating 40,000 years out from when God spoke at Mount Sinai and figure out, like, that's the day God's love ends. It's not a literal thing. This is a poetic way of saying things. But he's saying, sin will not burn unchecked. I will limit its power, but my love for my people who are in this life-giving relationship with me is unending. Friends, we don't need to make a relationship with God happen. He provides in Jesus all we need to be reconciled with Him and to live our entire lives as His beloved children. So friends, if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, stop performing for God. Stop performing for God. For some of us, that means that we perform for God by trying to stack up as many good things as we can do. I'm a good neighbor. I do this thing. I cut my neighbor's grass. I did this thing. Like you start listening. You're trying to, okay, if I do that, then I'll be a good person. For others of us, we despair in our failure. And we say, well, I'm not even going to bother. Because, you know, I'm so far in the negative column, I can't dig myself out of the hole. God's saying, stop. Stop. His love will not leave you. You don't need to try to grab a hold of it and try to keep him. Hear his word. Hear what he says and believe it. Go to him in the ways he's told us to find him in scripture, in prayer, in the sacraments, in our relationship with each other. And let's allow his passion for us to draw out from within us a passion for him.